Shannon here, and I wanted to let you guys know that You Talk is now on Patreon. When you join our Patreon, you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the podcast, continue the tough conversations about show topics and mental health, and even share your own stories, all while supporting this podcast. As an indie podcaster, your support helps pay for the tools and subscriptions I need to continue to bring you quality content. Thanks in advance for any support you can give, whether it's on Patreon or just sharing with friends. Hope to chat with you soon at patreon.com slash utalk2020. Our stories are what make us unique, but they're also what connect us as human beings. It's time to stop talking and start listening. This is You Talk, I'll Listen with Shannon Chapman. My guest this week had a complicated relationship with her father that led her into a series of bad relationships, including a marriage to a Scientologist at 20 that left her with nothing. The stress of everything sparked about with anorexia. Danielle, author of the blog She Proclaims, is here to tell us her story. Thank you for joining me, Danielle. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start from the beginning. I always like to find out how you grew up. What was your childhood like? Man, my childhood, the first 10 years, was actually pretty normal and kind of boring. I grew up in Michigan, have a mom and a dad and a sister, and we basically just did precisely what you would think people in small Midwestern towns do. You know, we went to church, we went to school, we took vacations, we had our family over for cookouts. Yeah, everything was pretty normal and status quo uh, for for quite a while when I was growing up. And I didn't even know that there was the possibility that things would slowly unravel. So yeah, everything after about age 10 got a little weird, but uh, it was even a surprise to me at that point. So no, once uh once I hit about age 10, my dad he had always struggled with alcohol and we we weren't aware of that. I just thought that they drank like normal everybody else drank and that things were fine. My mom does not have a problem with it and I guess that everything was either kept very under control or it was kept very secret from us those first 10 years or so, because honestly, we had no idea until one night when my dad did slip up in front of us. And all of a sudden, I mean, there was already the trauma of of seeing a parent in a drunken state. I think no matter how many times you see that, it's not something that you ever get accustomed to or that you ever just accept. At least you shouldn't. But for us, it was just so much harder because it was like, this is the t-ball coach, dad. And he teaches at the Sunday school and he goes to all the things. What is happening with his body? So it got really difficult after that point to start to reconcile like sober dad and drunk dad, I guess is the way to put it. How did your relationship with your dad affect the romantic relationships that you had in your teens? I think that because we had had him, my dad, and we lost him so abruptly, I kind of was left with this feeling of missing out on things and like I didn't have what everyone else had. So when I started to get into high school, I very much... I wanted to get good grades and go on with life and everything, but I also very much wanted to have a boyfriend. I really wanted to have, I guess, a male in my life. I didn't have any grandpas. I didn't have any uncles nearby. It was literally just 
women in my whole life. So I definitely placed a much higher um, priority on on dating and trying to find someone from yeah the earliest of my high school years that I can really recall. It was like I thought somehow I was okay, but I didn't have that. So I was just searching to fill whatever void was left. And it definitely, it led me to a few relationships early on that were, they were iffy. (laughs) I'm sure grown-up me can look at that now and be like, oh, honey, you could do so much better. Listen, I know everyone's 14, (laughs) but... (laughs) But but even through all of that, I, I still had a good sense of, of myself and what I what I would or wouldn't do or put up with. So things like drugs and sex at that point, I was like, none of that. No. I mean, I want to have a male, but I've seen what, what addiction can do and and I want you to like me for me, not because of what I can do. And early on that led to a lot of boys breaking up with me, <laughs> which just kind of compounded things. I kept thinking like, good night. I can't get these boyfriends to stay. I can't get my flipping dad to stay. Like, what am I doing wrong? I'm, I don't even think I'm doing anything. I'm just breathing. But apparently I'm breathing wrong. So it was, it was a big struggle. It, it really started to hurt my self-esteem. It really did impact how I started to see relationships because I still had my core values, but as time went on, I realized I was willing to, to chip at them a little bit or let some things go that I wouldn't have been willing to part with early on. A lot of give and take because I just figured it's got to be me. Everybody else can get someone to stay. So there's got to be a change there. And yeah. Then when I was later in high school, I I did find a boyfriend who really did help because he his dad had had some similar problems. So I think it was just really great because we could connect on those things. And finally, it was like, oh, this is so nice. Not only do you appear to like me for me, you know, you're not scared off by my problems because you've got them too. And when I would share things about what I was or wasn't willing to do, you know, there, was, there wasn't as much pressure there because I think that he understood the baggage that I was carrying, if that makes sense. So it wasn't as much of a deterrent for him. Right. You mentioned that you couldn't get your dad to stay. Was he in and out of the house? Did your parents get divorced? What happened there? So my parents did get a divorce. From, again, there was a lot more going on that I didn't know. I think that finally it ex- being exposed to the kids was like, dude, my poor mother was like, I can't keep doing this because <laughs> now I got to deal with you and I got to try and explain it to them. It's over. So I, I really respect her because that had to have been hard. She was a stay-at-home mom pretty much until that point. She'd had a part-time job. but. Like we were starting out with nothing and yeah, he, he would be in and out Uh, again. The addiction just kind of took over. And I, I think it's one of those horrible cyclical catch 22 kind of places where the addiction caused you to lose everything, but because you've lost everything, the, the vice that you're addicted to is where you go to self-medicate and it just kept feeding off of that. You know, he he would try and get sober and he would do it for a little bit and then he'd hit a hiccup and then it would all go downhill again. And, you know, he was he was in and out of the picture pretty regularly. We might see him regularly for, I don't know, two or three months. And then he'd be gone for three or four months. And sometimes he'd flake out altogether on coming to pick us up. So it just started to feel like we just aren't a priority. And I could never understand then why couldn't we be enough? And 
what in this other life or these things that you're doing, what about that is so much cooler than us and better than us? So it really did start to kind of shape not only how I viewed myself, but even how I viewed relationships. Like, I got to keep up. I got to keep being awesome and the best so that nothing else takes their attention. And that's just not long-term doable. Right. You were married at 20. What was that relationship like? Uh, That was definitely my first, I would say, adult relationship. Even though looking back, we were not even close to adults. (laughs) So, you know, after high school, people break up. So I broke up with, with my high school boyfriend and I didn't go to school right away. I didn't go off for college. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was just, again, dealing with so many feelings of just doubt and confidence was a struggle. So I was working and this guy came in and, you know, he he had on a shirt and a tie. So in my mind, I was like, clearly he's made it, even though... <laughs> <laughs> You know, when you're 20 and you're working, or 20, I was 18 when we met. When you're 18 and working at a pizza place, yeah, you know, a guy comes in in a shirt and tie. Clearly, he he probably runs something big. That's why he's at a pizza joint. So, you know, we just, we struck up some conversations. And, and to start off, it was, it was like everything I had been looking for. And... He didn't really know anybody out here at that point. He had just moved out here. So there was nobody else for him to even consider hanging out with other than me. And obviously, I had been craving somebody to give me that level of attention. So I was all in. And I mean, what guy doesn't like that, realistically? So it kind of started off where I thought we were being very mature and we were falling madly in love and it was everything that every movie ever led me to believe it would be. But again, looking back, I think that we were just two very lonely people who found each other and just the codependency fired right up and just kind of fed into that. And we did, we rushed, we were, we got married, got an apartment, got a cat because you got to do that. and. Yeah, we just went from like zero to all in within a matter of months. Was he a Scientologist beforehand or did he become one? So he was a Scientologist beforehand. And it freaked me out at first because I was like, okay, that's cool. But like, do you still love Jesus? Because... (laughs) I require Jesus. I don't go to church really anymore. Um, We don't talk all the time, but at the end of the day, I need Jesus. And it's a very interesting thing. I hate to use the term when they're trying to sell you, but yeah, it's kind of what it felt like. But when they're explaining it, you know, he kept telling me, well, it's not really a religion. It's, I can't even remember the word exactly, but basically it's like a religion adapter. So it's something you can do above and beyond your religion. So as soon as I heard that I could have Jesus and I could go do what he wanted to make him happy, I was like, this is perfect. I get to make you happy. I've got Jesus. Let's do this. And so I started going to some of the talks and to some of the classes and what I saw when I talked with him or even when we went to smaller places uh, like the the orgs that's what they call for lack of a better term their churches so when we go to the orgs up here the smaller ones you know I would kind of get that vibe that they were very much yeah keep your religion and, and add on And just use our technology for that. But then we went down to the main hub in Clearwater. And that was a whole experience. Uh, From the minute that we walked in, they just kept trying to get us to do this auditing. 
where basically they would have you hold two tin cans and they would ask you a zillion questions just to see how you responded so then they could find the right classes for you. And it just felt so, so sales pitchy and weird that the skeptical side of me was like, okay, let's do this. And I started off by answering every question with a lie just to see like, cause they kept telling me, well, we will know if you're lying. I'm like, okay, let's see. They did not know that I was lying. <laughs> they were like, oh man, really? You lost on the pageant circuit? That must have been really difficult. And I'm like, yeah, it was the worst. And, <laughs> you know, and I could see my husband's face. Like he was not going to make a scene, but I'm like, oh, we are going to discuss this later. But I just wanted to see. So after, after that, you know, they took us on this tour of this huge building. It was, it was really gorgeous, honestly. And we went into this bookstore that they had there and they gave me this whole list of the classes and things that I should do. I'm like, okay. I mean, there must be something to this. I'm not totally a jerk. I'm not totally closed-minded. So I was asking about this class and it was going to help me be a better communicator. I thought, well, worst case, I become a better communicator. You know, I don't have much to lose. So you start going through all this. And this, of course, was back when you didn't have stuff online. It was the late 90s. So they were trying to sell me this book of like, I swear, there had to have been 10 cassette tapes in this big case. So the thought being, I could read the book and listen to the cassettes and do this workbook and, you know, learn how to communicate better. So they get to the end of the spiel. And the price for this class was like $600. And I'm like, we need to back up a second here. You literally already know that I legit work part-time at the mall. <laughs> I don't have $600 for this. I'm like, what, what do you do if you can't afford it? And they looked at me like I had like seven heads. And then they started telling me about all these financing options or how you could get a loan or do you have a credit card? And again, I was like, whoa, you're just trying to get me to make bad financial decisions to get help. And I don't think that making one horrible choice to maybe get help is the way to go. So I started telling them, like, I can't, I can't fathom that you're doing this. And busted out a line that I still giggle about. I said to them, uh, Jesus loves me for free. And Jesus has never asked me for $600. And I told them, I said, if I went down the street to a church and I told them, I need Jesus and I need the Bible and I can't afford one, they would hand me one. I have no doubt in my mind. So I'm really struggling with you saying that I can still do my religion and this will just, you know, help enhance it if you're telling me I have to give up this much money because I'm terribly sorry. Jesus loves me for free. That's my religion. We got to work with this. Uh, at that moment, I was escorted out of the building and he, he stayed. Wow. So I hung out on the steps of the Scientology building and waited for him to do whatever he did while he was in there. And then we, we really didn't talk about it. I don't think we needed to. I think it was pretty obvious that I was not going to be as involved in that as what he had hoped. Did that cause a rift? Truthfully, I th it did. It was, it was small at first and we just kind of, glossed it over. You know, he would go to seminars and sometimes I would go with him still to the org for services and stuff. And I did end up doing a couple of cheaper classes that they had. You know, it was like 75, 80 bucks. And I did read some of the books. You know, I kept telling him like, I want to respect what you're doing. I just find so much wrong with this. And then it got to a point where he started explaining to me that you needed to stop talking to people who were no longer helpful or good in your life. And they referred to them as suppressive persons. 
or SPs for short. So he started like making a list for me of who the SPs were in my life. Like, we got to get rid of these people. And, and it was like my mother and my sister, but yet my father was okay. And for some reason, again, I think I just, I wanted to succeed at our marriage. And I knew that this was important to him that I actually started to listen. And I, I really did. I backed away from my family a lot. And I even got rid of a lot of friends. And I wasn't fully practicing everything that he was, but I adhered to a lot of it, just trying to find this balance of being able to keep him happy and keep him around without giving up my Jesus and going fully into debt. It was not easy at all. (laughs) Now, I read in your blog about something tragic that happened during this marriage. Um, Sadly, you lost two babies. And the way that you were describing that experience in such detail, it just broke my heart. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm really glad that you read that because I felt back then and I still feel now like how many women go through that and we just kind of gloss it over and it's awkward. So I feel like it's an important thing to put some light on and to allow people to grieve and to share. Uh, So that's kind of what I was hoping for there. But yeah, when I was 24, we were pretty pretty far into our marriage at that point. We uh, got pregnant and I really had thought everything was going okay and I had been sick and everything was fine. And they had done different tests and, you know, we were having twins. I mean, that was scary, but I was super excited too because I had been, you know, I'd lost my family. And the idea of rebuilding it where I was the grown-up and I could make the choices. I just wanted it to be so great. And yeah, um, went to the doctor one day and I wasn't expecting anything out of the blue. And she couldn't find the heartbeats, which hadn't been totally uh, like scary at that point. I was really early on, like still only like maybe 13, 14 weeks. And she w- took me into the ultrasound room to then just get in on the ultrasound machine. And that's when we went in and she was like, yeah, there's, there's no heartbeats. And it was just such a crushing blow to be in that room. I can still see that room today. And that's been 16 years now. And just to be there and to hear those words and just the looks of pity that came on the doctor's face and the, the machine, ultrasound machine lady's face, it was just this overwhelming feeling of, man, you know, you almost did it. You almost made a family and you almost got it all, but we're just kidding. You can't have that. And then I had to go through the difficult process of trying to call people. And I did ask my husband, I said, I need you to just call everybody. I can't keep saying the sentence out loud. I can't do it. And he did. And the next morning, they gave me the option to either wait and let things happen naturally. But at that point, I was so crushed. I just wanted it done. So I went in the next morning and we set up for the DNC. And again, I went in to do that. And I remember waking up and it was the strangest empty feeling of just knowing that two days ago I was somebody's mom. And now I'm not. And I'm literally empty. I've been feeling emotionally empty all these years, but now I am literally empty from what I had wanted. And it was, it was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever had to go through in my life. 
and my heart just breaks anytime I hear of anybody having to go through something like that. I can only imagine how you felt and probably still feel because I, I would sense that that never goes away. It probably gets better, but mm-hmm. probably never goes away. No, I can still tell you that I had the DNC done on April 29th. And I can tell you that they had a due date of November 11. And yeah, you know, I still, I think about them and it took a really long time for me to get to a place where I felt like I could even discuss it uh, without losing it. Um, but I didn't realize then, I, I guess I just didn't understand. Like, I still was a mom. I'm still their mom. And I know... Again, someday I'm going to have all my kids together. <laughs> Just not right now. And and that's it's hard, but it does. It it gets it gets easier to just kind of cope with and and to move on, move forward from. What effect did that have on your mental health? Um truthfully, at that point, ooh, yeah, I looking back, I can say that I definitely was falling into depression. But I masked it by just throwing myself into everything humanly possible. I started working crazy long hours at work because I just wanted to be the best there. And I was trying to work my way up in a new company. We had just purchased a new house. So I took a week off of work and landscaped the entire thing myself just because I I, I think I was just craving control. I didn't want to even just tell someone, put the bush there. I wanted to put the bush there to make sure that I had the right side facing out. And it was just at the right angle. And a lot of that started to happen. And then I went and purchased a new car. So just, again, a lot of things that, looking back now, I can say, whoa, those are absolutely warning signs that you are not in a good place. And I just figured I was trying to move forward and I was trying to rebuild. And I was kind of proud of me because look at everything I'm getting done. I'm not, I'm not broken. I'm not sad. And then within four weeks of my DNC, I was pregnant again, even though the doctor said not to do that. And I remember the very first time I went in and I sat down. She just walked into the room and she said, I had a feeling that you were going to be one that was right back in here. So then she really, she monitored me closely because I think she knew at that point, having done this hundreds of times, that if something had happened again, I don't even want to think where I would have gone. She really took care of me and watched everything just to make sure we were doing every possible safeguard. Because I, I definitely think I would have cracked had my pregnancy, my second one, uh, ended tragically. That's good that you had that support. Somewhere in your story, things went sour. How did your marriage end? You know, it was, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And there wasn't like this huge climactic thing, which I guess based on what I had seen with my parents, to an extent, I always thought, as long as we don't have one huge blow-up night, we'll be okay. We might not be as happy as we used to, but it just slowly over time, things started to tarnish. Again, our faith was going in two different ways. That was, that was a bit of a, of a continual argument. And he did finally leave the Church of Scientology, or at least stopped participating right around when I found out that I was pregnant. And he never said, like, hey, I really resent you and this is horrible. But I know because I had said things like, our kids aren't going to be raised like that. I won't participate. I know that that definitely contributed to him stepping back. And whether it was said or not, obviously, that's going to cause resentment anytime you ask someone to give up something that important. So that was part of it. And then 
you know, early on, what had drawn us together was just that we really didn't have anyone else. And from my side, you know, I had cut ties with all these people and he had been making friends. So then I started to feel kind of resentful because he would have all these people that he could go do things with. And I had had to slowly cut off the people I really liked and that I loved. And I just hadn't been able to find anybody to step in and to replace them. So I know I started to feel a lot of resentment just towards, you know, why aren't you paying attention to me? And why aren't you wanting to stay home and hang out with me? I'm still fun, even if I don't want to do those things. And that definitely fed into the self-esteem aspects a lot. Again, that's kind of an ongoing thing. And then over time, especially once our son was born, by no means is it, you know, a child's fault. But we just had two very different views on what we should be doing. I would say, you know, it's seven o'clock. We need to put him in the tub and we need to get him snuggled up and ready for bed. And he'd be like, well, that's cool, but I was hoping we could go downtown for dinner at eight. Can't he just go in his car seat? (laughs) Which, looking back, you know what? He probably could have just gone in his car seat. But as a first-time mom, I was like, no, that's not what you do. We stay home and we put him in his bed. And I think that that really was the final thing that started to really drive the wedge further and further apart to the point that. By the time our son was one, my husband was working extra hours, and I truthfully, I loved when he worked late, just because I knew, like, I'm not going to have to have any discussion or any debate about anything I'm doing tonight. I can just flipping do it. And that's not, that's not healthy. You can't stay married like that. We tried some therapy, but even that never really panned out. We couldn't even agree on a therapist that we liked. So shortly after our son turned one, he walked in, my husband walked in one day and he said to me, I want a divorce. And I was like, okay, yeah, (laughs) let's do that. And we moved into separate bedrooms and lived together long enough for me to uh, save up the money to get my own place. And we were done. Were you affected by that split? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, It definitely brought back a lot of feelings of failure that stemmed from my dad, truthfully, and how my parents' divorce had gone. Because now I, again, have a man who said he was going to love me and he said he was going to be there forever. And for whatever reason, I wasn't able to keep him. I wasn't able to be enough or to make him happy. I took a lot of the ownership for what happened as as a personal reflection on me. I couldn't just see it as sometimes things just literally don't work out. So that definitely started um, a bad spiral for me. And then, of course, I'm sitting here and I'm holding my son, who is another male that You're barely a year old and I've already let you down. I have blown up your entire life and your entire family. So, yeah, you're legally obligated to be near me for the next 17 years as my child. But, wow, I let you down basically out of the womb. So, chalk that up and I'm clearly failing as a mom. So, it was was rough. And the nights when, when my son was with his dad, I would pretty much come home from work. Um, I might find something on TV and I would just go to sleep. I pretty much gave up. I gave up doing most anything that wasn't just basic. Like the apartment is clean. Our laundry is done. I'm going to bed. The nights that he was with me, it was much easier because I could just, I was going through the motions for him. So it felt like there was an actual purpose but I just didn't feel that I was worth the effort. And that's when little by little, I was eating less and eating less. And I eventually spiraled into full-blown anorexia. And weight was just 
falling off. And I could see that it was happening, but truthfully, I didn't even care. And I kind of liked that the weight was falling off because in my own twisted way, you know, I had all this baby weight and maybe not having the baby weight would make somebody want to stay or maybe it would help me find somebody. So I just had all these demons feeding into it and just kind of helping it go along. Finally, I did have a couple of really good friends who forgave me for not talking to them. (laughs) And they came back in the picture. And that's the first thing that they said. They were like, what is going on? You look like a skeleton. We got to do something. So at first, bless their hearts, they would call me three times a day and just ask me, did you eat? Are you eating? I'm coming down if you're not eating. Let me hear you chewing. They were on me. And it was annoying. (laughs) It was so annoying. I would get so mad. But it was also kind of exactly what I needed to start to pull me out of it. So I'm really fortunate that I know so many people struggle with these things for for years and years as an ongoing thing. And my bout lasted about six months. I finally went back to my doctor. I went to the doctor that um, had delivered my son and who had helped me through my pregnancy. And I just felt like she understood me. And she helped to get some medications that would help me to stop feeling sick every time I ate. You know, that's something that I don't think people talk about or know is just after a while, even when you want to eat, when you're coming out of those spirals, your body at that point is literally like, I don't know what this is you're putting down here, but I don't like it. It's weird. And it fully makes you sick to your stomach to the point of even though you want to eat, you literally can't because you feel so terrible after. So she did. She gave me some medications that helped with that. And and my friends stayed on me. And I was able to get back to a healthy place after about six months. I did not know that about anorexia. I did not either until literally, you know, I was there. And um, there's all kinds of other really gross things that your body will do just because you're not getting the nutrients. Um, and I'll spare you. You can Google that if you want. But <laughs> yes, it wasn't pretty. And that was kind of the wake up call that I was like, whoa, is my body shutting down? This isn't good. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a multi-headed beast when you're battling something like that. Did you end up remarrying? I did. I did. I went through quite a bit of therapy. After my divorce and the anorexia and everything else, because at that point, whether it was me or not me, I knew that however I was doing things was not, it was not working. So I wanted to do the work to improve myself, improve my situations, because I didn't want to go into any other relationships again, just kind of blind and fumbling along and not bringing my best self. So I did, though, one night, a girlfriend and I, she was going through a breakup, and I had just been coming off of my crazy year of divorce and anorexia and all this other stuff. And she was like, we need to go out and just have a girl's night. Let's just go get some dinner, and we're going to have some drinks, and we're going to dance, and it'll be great. Like, yes, this is perfect. And of course, this was before Uber and everything. So she said to me, well, I'm going to bring my brother if you're okay, because my brother can drive us and he's a big dude. So if any dudes come over, we're just going to tell him to come scare them away because we aren't talking to boys tonight. No boys. And I'm like, yes, thank you. Bring the scary person. And yeah, by halfway through the night, we went to the bathroom and I was like, this is awkward, but I got to call you tomorrow. And I know we said no boys tonight, so I'm not going to talk about it tonight. But I think your brother's really cute. (laughs) (laughs) So I have failed at girls' night. (laughs) Um, So yeah, 
you know, the next day her and I were talking and she was like, that'd be cool if you dated my brother because then we would be at family events together. I'm like, exactly. So, um, you know, she got us in contact and, and we chatted a little bit on MySpace as one did back then. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. I was like, I hope I make his top six. But <laughs> <laughs> we, we did, though, finally go and we met up for dinner. And, you know, again, I'd been doing all this work on me and I just sat down at the table and I said to him at dinner, I really like you and I'm having fun. So I hope this doesn't ruin anything. I have zero time for games. I have zero time for BS. So if we're going to do this, you need to know I'm a mom. That means sometimes I'm going to cancel a date and it's not because I hate you or there's anything else. It's because somebody has a fever and no, I'm not just going to give them Tylenol and get a sitter. I'm going to be late for things because if there's one thing I know, my child will do something stupid right as I'm leaving the door that I'm going to have to deal with. If you can't handle that, no. But yeah, I, I, I don't have any time for playing games. If you like me, you like me. If you don't, you don't. You're not going to hurt my feelings. It's totally fine. I hope we could still be friends because I need some friends. But that's that. You will always be, you know, number two, basically, because I got this kid and he's the greatest ever. And he looked at me and he was like, no, that all sounds cool. <laughs> and, and we've been together ever since. And it's just been wonderful. You know, he obviously was single and no kids, but he took to this crazy two, two and a half year old kid like like it was his own. So I got really fortunate there. And and I do think that taking the time to just do that extra work and get to know me and start to understand what was driving some of my decisions and why I was doing things it just helped me to bring a better me to my relationships and also to understand, you know, even when we do hit a speed bump, it's not necessarily just because, oh, you know, he hates me. No, it could be something as simple as he's really tired and he has 17 deadlines at work that are looming. And out of the blue, I'm like, hey, want to go out for dinner tonight? We don't ever go out for dinner, you know, to where it's not personal. It's not that he doesn't want to go out for dinner with me. It's just we have hit the threshold. And that's been a real game changer. We're really good at talking about things and knowing our limits. And it's just been refreshing and everything I wanted. That's so awesome. What is a blessing in all of your struggles? Well, the number one blessing I feel is that I've come to understand nothing is permanent. And it can go both ways. Obviously, good things aren't permanent, unfortunately. So it really has helped me to be more present and awake in the moment, even before that was a thing, because I know that this can all be gone. And you need those memories. Take the pictures. Do those things. But also, it's helped me to realize that the bad things aren't forever either. They're just as temporary. And the only way to really get through them is to keep going. And some days, you know, you can go a day at a time or a week at a time. And other days, it's like, no, I can only go an hour or a minute at a time. But I've learned that no matter what, even the smallest amount of progress is enough. And, and it's really what you need to do to get to the good parts in life. So that's really been a blessing that, that I've come to see as I've gotten older and gone through more. Based on your experiences, what advice would you give to someone who might be listening? I would really, really recommend getting to know yourself. Just based on my own experiences. I was living a life where I was trying to do what I thought I needed to do. It kind of came from family pressures, society's pressures, and every fairy tale movie and everything I ever saw. 
I was just chasing this mythical happily ever after that, you know, in my mind, it was a destination and it existed, but truth be told, it's not, it's not real. And you just, it's not obtainable. But to just be able to get to know yourself and to know that you're making decisions that are true to you and that are true to your heart and that are true to where you want to go. So if that means that you don't want to ever get married and you don't ever want to have kids, then high five. Figure out who you are and go live your single child-free life and make it the best one ever. And on the flip side, if you decide that you want to get married and you want to have 17 kids and you want to homeschool them and you're going to make all your own baby food, like, I'm not doing that, but absolutely <laughs> good not. for you if that's, <laughs> if that's your, your thing. And I think too often, especially young girls, I've seen plenty of other people go through things similar to what I have. You just fall victim to what you think other people are wanting you to do and what you have to do when the real answer is you don't have to do anything. You need to, to love yourself and to take care of yourself. And the only way to do that is to get to know yourself. So whether it's through reading or, or therapy or prayer, or meditation, however you get there, I think it's just important to take time and just focus on figuring yourself out and not worrying about the other stuff. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> so you have a new book? I do. It's coming out this year. So not quite available yet. Um, COVID seems to have slowed everything down. <laughs> so, yep, I do, though. I have a new book, um, and it, it's very faith-based uh, because my faith really is important to me. So it, it touches on a lot of what we talked about today, but also just my spiritual journey because I did. I, I grew up so invested in the church, and I lived and died by every single word. I wanted every star on that memory verse chart, and, and I fully believe that as long as I was checking those boxes off, like, I got the golden ticket, and my life's going to be great. But then as it started to fall apart, you know, I started to question all of those things. And like, what are you doing here, God? You said, if I love you and I do this, then I'll be rewarded. But my reward is that you took away my whole flipping family. And like, that's not cool. So the book is, it's about my journey from being all in with God and how I kind of fell apart and fell away from him and experienced life. And started to kind of realize that God's still good and he's still there, even in the hard times. And, and we aren't, we aren't just going to be, you know, safe from difficulties just because we're checking the boxes. And then my, my journey back to finding my, my own faith as far as my beliefs are a little bit different now. And I have changed churches. We are definitely more liberal and open-minded than, than where I had grown up. And, and it just feels so right. And I think that it's something, again, that when I speak with people, I know so many people are struggling with. And hopefully, when this comes out, I'm really hoping that it helps people to understand that, again, there's not one right way, not one wrong way, and that everything's a journey and that you can do it. That is awesome. I wish you much success with your book and your blog. Um, do you want to tell us how to get to your blog? Absolutely. Uh, my blog can be found at sheproclaims.com. And I was updating uh, twice a month and then life got a little hectic. That is a pattern in my life, uh, but things are dying back down. So we should be firing back up. So between the blog and the book and um, we've got some other things in the works for later this year. So I think that folks are going to find a lot of good community and just some thinking and talking points to hopefully make this crazy life thing a little bit easier. Yeah, definitely. It is um, not easy for anyone. Mm -mm. No. <laughs> Christian or non-Christian. Right. Well, Danielle, I love your energy. I thank you for agreeing to do this interview with me. 
And I just appreciate you being here and sharing your experiences. Thank you so much just for the opportunity. And I really love your podcast. So I've gotten a lot out of just re-listening to some of the older episodes. So if someone hasn't done that, they should too. Because you have, <laughs> you've got a lot of good stuff. I think it's important that, that we are all sharing. Thank you. Thank you. Stay tuned for the mic drop moment. Enjoy what you heard today? Help us get the word out. Give You Talk a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. You might find your review reposted on our social media. Thanks for listening. The mic drops next. Danielle has been through a lot of difficult experiences in her life, and she's not even made it to her golden years yet. From an alcoholic father who was in and out of her life, to her parents' divorce, a miscarriage of twins, her own divorce, depression, and anorexia. It reminds me of that picture of the iceberg, because you would never know all that stuff about Danielle if you saw her in the store. One thing I heard as she shared her story is how her relationship with her father affected her interactions with other males. She was looking to fill a hole that that relationship created with male attention. And though she had very strong values, she would sometimes bend them a little. Like when attending Scientology classes, even when she was skeptical, and cutting off her friends and family. She did all this to try to keep a man around. She felt like she had a problem because she couldn't keep a man. Her dad left, boyfriends left, her husband left, and she felt like she had ruined her son's life as well when she and his dad divorced. She even quietly embraced the weight loss she saw in the early stages of her battle with anorexia because she thought it might help her get and keep a man. Therapy seemed to be the thing that helped her break this chain of thinking. It helped her to discover who she really was aside from who she thought she was supposed to be and to figure out why she did the things she did. It also led her to a happier, healthier version of herself that led her to attracting someone who fit right into her new life. It seemed like working on herself is what actually helped her to keep a man. A great jewel that Danielle left us with is that nothing is permanent. Having this mindset creates resilience like we talked about in the previous episode with Charmaine. It can help us push past the pain and hardship until we get to the other side. If you're still listening, I assume you enjoyed this episode. So go ahead and rate and review this podcast and Apple podcast and share it with a friend you think would like it as well. On the next episode, you'll hear from Daniel, a once homeless stage actor who lives with autism spectrum disorder and complex PTSD. Talk to you soon. Grace and blessings. Blessings.